classic line from one of the Godfathers, just when I thought I, I was out, they dragged me back in. I love the idea of like getting dragged back in and you're getting dragged back in deeper and deeper and deeper, but they keep dragging you in as you're burning it all down around them. There are rules and John's bending them all to shatter. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week's guest is the fantastic Derek Kolstad, the writer responsible for one of the biggest action franchises in cinema today. 2014's John Wick was a gripping neo-noir revenge flick that saw Keanu Reeves play a retired assassin grieving the loss of his wife. When a chance encounter with a Russian gangster leads to the death of his beloved dog, the character embarks on a violent crusade for vengeance, drawn back into a murky criminal underworld that he thought he'd left behind. The film was a frenzy of breathtaking fight sequences and surprisingly emotional character beats, directed by Chad Stahelski. Derek wrote the movie after one day finding himself wondering what he'd be capable of if anyone was to ever hurt one of his two dogs. His original vision for the movie, however, was a little bit different to the film we know today. As you'll discover in this episode, John Wick was originally envisioned as a Rambo-esque former boxer in his 60s. Scorn, as the film was originally titled, had a different backstory for the widowed assassin, different supporting characters, and a different ending. I spoke to Derek from his family home in Wisconsin to hear about the film's evolution, the heartbreaking hidden tribute to his grandparents that he snuck into the film, and the future of the character, a future that he's decided to step away from. If you're a fan of Marvel and the MCU, by the way, you might want to stick around to the end for an intriguing update on Derek's next project, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey, Derek, thanks so much for coming on the show. The first John Wick movie came out six years ago now, and since then we've had two sequels. John's become this instantly recognisable action cinema brand. And both Keanu Reeves, the film star, and action cinema at large have enjoyed brilliant resurgences, in part because of it. Am I right, though, in thinking you can't take all the credit, because there are two dogs who helped inspire the movie, Loki and Isis? Yeah, that kind of shows you how old Isis is, because any time we go to a, bo- a dog park, we just refer to her as Easy. Um, <laughs> you know, I know Loki is uh, 15 and uh, Isis is 14. They're actually here on this trip. Um but, you know, to, when you think about John Wick, um, it's weird because it wasn't that long ago in my head, but it was eons ago. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like one of the things that we focused on uh, going into it is, you know, Chad and Dave and Keanu and myself, we all love action movies. But the, the action movies we love are, are you love the, the actor, the character, you know, uh, plot is plot, world is world, but you got to give a shit about the character. And you know, I remember when we went to the first screening of John Wick. It was at it wasn't maybe the first screening, but it was a, it was a first large screening. It was at uh, the Cinema Dome in Hollywood at the ArcLight there, and we're watching the audience from the green room. And I just I remember we all selected people that looked like they didn't want to be there. You know, <laughs> uh, and I picked this one guy. He's probably in his fifties. There with his two sons and his daughter, and he's just like bored out of his head. And then the dogs killed spoiler uh and uh he was like "Ooh, 
like you could just kind of see him go hmm and then when uh you know he, the, the call is made to the mob boss and it's the classic like you know he stole john wick's car and he goes oh and the guy again goes hmm and then when you had the first action sequence on the house we really kind of knew i think this is gonna do okay and that isn't being like overtly humble it was like every movie is a a, a risk you know mm-hmm. be it financial or just time-wise and it was there at the beginning that we're like, maybe this is this is hitting, you know. And then when you actually saw that guy like sit up on his seat like a twelve-year-old who snuck into his first R-rated movie and giggle, <laughs> you're like, all right, okay, we're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, you could say that, but but that's true. Then that story of um, the genesis of John Wick being, you know, uh, a daydream almost of like, what would happen if? Uh, how would I respond if someone ever hurt Loki or Isis? Yeah. Well, again, too, like. You know there you know there have been movies in the past that have tackled the subject of stolen car killed ho- killed dog uh, a lot of times in the westerns like you shot my horse you know mm-hmm. and for us it was it was the best stories tend to be unique yet familiar you know and that was our way in but the other thing that i always loved in these movies and, and ronin is such a great example of this i bring it up every week they just reference like do i know you by way of the german it never comes up again Mm. Uh, I'm sure I slaughtered whatever the line was, but it just alluded to a larger world. Like even in Star Wars, which we all grew up with, you hear about Jabba the Hutt and don't see in the first movie, you don't see him to the third one. And it's just like with the with John Wick, we didn't want him ever talking about how badass he was because then it just deflates it. But if you have mm. the people around him reacting a certain way and then we're like, ooh, that makes sense. Uh, also, the hotel. You know, we love the idea of I grew up watching those old black and white noir movies with Eastern and Western Germany, uh, where one agent is fighting another agent and then they find themselves in Switzerland. And it's like, well, we can't do shit here. Let's go have a drink. And I think that's where a lot of that came from. And because of that, we got to build out Miss Perkins and Sharon and just all of the other characters. Winston, who's in the first movie for, you know, I, I couldn't tell you. It's just a couple of minutes. Um, but he was such a delight that he's now become a cornerstone of the franchise. You know? As you mentioned, there's, and as we'll discuss as we start to delve into the script, there are so many little allusions to you know, backstories and things that we're not seeing on screen, but that we're getting a hint of happening in the past. You really seem to have kind of gone to some considerable effort to give the sense that these characters all have really storied histories together. Is that kind of one of the things that you kind of credit John, John Wick's success to? I do. And at the same time, though, too, when you look at what Keanu did to get ready for that role and how he invested himself in that role, I mean, 99% of those scenes, that's him on the floor. That's him doing the work. Here's a guy in his 50s, and he is beating the fuck out of his body, uh, putting in the hours uh, and dealing with cold and illness and injury. And I honestly... When you look at a movie like that and you're like, that's really him doing it. And he's, he's one of the nicest, most humble, hardworking guys. I think first and foremost in John Wick, you know, he is the fuel to that fire, you know, and what I do is, you know, a guidebook, creating and laying the foundation. But if you don't have a a character you care about, um, and we always talk about the non, the unspoken narrative of a story, it's the Indiana Jones of it all, right? 
you didn't need to hear him speak before you totally understood that character or the beginning of Casino Royale with uh, Daniel Craig, the bomb maker goes to the window, bomb goes to the fucking wall. And you're like, I know who this is. Mm. Uh, so I think a great deal of this is, yeah, we came up with a cool world, uh, came up with a cool character. Um, you know, Chad and Dave come from uh, just the story career and action and applied it uh, magnificently. Uh, in the director's chair, but it begins and ends, I believe, with uh, what that character, what that actor is willing to do. And dude, it's on it's on Keanu's shoulders, you know. And here's a guy who doesn't really want to do or, or like franchises. You know, he's always taking chances, always trying new things. But he found a guy that uh, he really digs, and he wants to keep doing it. And the number of times that you'll be on set where he's like, "I'm going to do that thing." And you're like, "No, dude." <laughs> Insurance company's like, "Yeah, you're not jumping off of that." Um, but uh, you know, he is the one that when he's on set, you know, the directors at one point in that first movie were like, you know, where's the star? Where's the actor? And you hear this voice going here. And he's sitting on a, a little Apple box in the corner because he, he also loves tech and he loves the process so much that he's not off, you know, just laying, laying out in his, um, his rig. He's there on set because he loves it. And so you look at that and his love for it, his love for the cast and crew, um, you know, it was, you know, when, when, when the, the name came up of Keanu, of course, we're all fans. Um, but when you saw him in that beard, the first shot, uh, it came to us. We're like, oh, there he is. There's John. <laughs> yeah, his commitment to the part really shines through. But one thing I've always found so interesting about the film and the franchise is, on one hand, it's violence and the body count of this film is so enthralling. But at the same time, is there a message in this film and, and in the franchise as a whole? about the futility of violence and the endlessness of it because all that bloodlust and thirst for revenge doesn't ultimately get John anywhere and by the end of the most recent film certainly he's deeper into that black hole than ever is, was that something you wanted to explore when you sat down to write these films or is that something I'm projecting onto the film no man project all you want <laughs> but here, here's the thing we always want I, I, I always wanted to do is the idea we've all seen those movies where the classic line from one of the Godfathers, I, I don't know which one, where it's like, just when I thought I, I was out, they dragged me back in, right? Well, we lo I love the idea of like getting dragged back in and you're getting dragged back in deeper and deeper and deeper, but they keep dragging you in as you're burning it all down around them. You know, at a certain point, there are rules and John's bending them all to shatter, you know? Um, and then at the end of the second one, he shoots a guy in the Continental. Like it's, it's like, even the world is like, wait a minute, like you just shattered it all. But then you realize like, you know, I think there's a part of us that just like, John doesn't give a fuck. He's like, I walked away. I found what I found something worth loving. Uh, I lost it. And there's no vengeance to be had against the cold, you know, hand of death. Uh, and then this one semblance of her returns and you took it from me. Uh, that reminds me that I gotta, I gotta, I'm going to tap into this thing and burn it all down, you know? And that's where the fun is to be had, you know? The violence of it all, at a certain point, you know, when I saw, uh, when we were watching the, the third one, I was watching with Angelica Houston, which was just bizarre to me. <laughs> and she, at the end, she's just chuckling as she looks back. She's like, holy shit. And I'm like, yeah. I like, But at the same time, like, it's kind of done with a little bit of the tongue-in-cheek, man, you know? Yep. 
the best action movies to me, they're having fun. Like I love the rape. We bring it up all the time. It's one of the best. Yeah. I love Old Boy. I love uh, the First Kingsman. You know, I love Ronan. I love Die Hard. And you can go and like a last long kiss goodnight, man. You could have a seriously dark scene, but there's a level of humor and humanity to it. That's what we were trying to do, you know. And is there a story behind the name? Did you know you sort of wanted something like punchy two syllables? No, it's that's what's funny, and is it's my grandfather's name. And oh, no exactly, it's my grandfather's house I'm at right now, uh, on the <laughs> lake. And I'm not a name guy. Like, even titles, I suck at. It's just not a strength. Like, the first John Wick was just titled Scorn. What the fuck does that mean? Um, but I took the name John because uh, I wanted a simple name. You know, you know, there's John McClane or, you know, James Bond. And I think it was just like, it became John Wick. And, you know, my grandfather's still alive. And he's a self-made man. He's a, he's a great dude. And of course, he hasn't watched it yet because he doesn't watch R-rated movies. I think, the <laughs> last, I think the last one he watched was The Piano about 20 years ago, which I get it, Grandpa. Um, but uh, and he's the sweetest dude, and you know he he knows how hard I work to get this career and get that movie made. He's just ecstatic for me. That's where the name came from. Now the funny thing, well not funny, but the sad thing is uh, John's wife in the movie is Helen, and that was my grandmother's name, and she died uh before the movie came out so all of my cousins and family who went to see this movie got to see john wick say goodbye to helen wick and it really hit them hard and i didn't even make that connection but i just to me it was a dedication to two people who made a who meant a lot you know Mm. to my upbringing yeah because of course in this version of the script that you kindly sent over uh the character is called norma i think yeah yeah which was my and that's what's funny is john wick is my my uh my mother's father and Norma is my um, uh, father's mother. And so it was just like, you know, just kind of taking names. Uh, and for the longest time in my office, I had posters up for the Dirty Dozen and um, um, Butch Casting and Sunnets Kid. Every name on that poster is made into a screenplay 12 times. We would just look up, be like, oh, that guy, you know. But that was a little bit more personal because uh, I, I love movies. I love to write. And John Wick was at up to that point. I just wanted a simple movie. But the deeper we got into the simplicity of that movie, I alluded to a larger world, it spawned a universe, you know? Mm. So where are you at in your life and career when you sat down to write that film? You know, I had... Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a weird question because, like, I had done a couple of movies. They weren't the greatest experiences, but they got made which in and of themselves is one of the stepping stones to do this. And um, at a certain point, though, one was so soul-sucking, I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I'll shift gears, maybe try the book thing. I'd always been working, and you know, we are kind of making ends meet. But um, Mike Callahan, one of the producers I worked with, he introduced me to Mike Goldberg and Josh Adler, who are still my reps. And, you know, they saved me and got to me to where I was and where I am. And I wrote this one called um, uh, A Simple Man, and it got optioned. And then uh, they asked, what, what are you working on now? And we just watched a couple of revenge movies, and I was just like, ah, it's just a little revenge movie. And I sent it over to them. And when you think of how swiftly this one went, I sent it to my agents probably around New Year's. Uh, they flipped for it, and we did the rewrites internally, which were a couple of weeks uh, which is even for any rewrite pretty swift. 
And then my agent at the time, Charlie Ferraro, who's just a saint and a joy, sent it off. And uh, we got a number of uh, offers back. And he's like, I really think we should go with uh, this crew because they want to make it now. And did a bunch of rewrites for them. Uh, on a Friday at noon in like February or March, uh, got a call from uh, Keanu saying, hey, I'm interested. Went over to his house uh, and met up with him and worked on it for a couple of weeks at his house, which was surreal, just surreal. And at four or five weeks out, he's like, I think I'm in. And in my head, I'm like, I thought you were, but cool. <laughs> and then it was directors, Chad and Dave. And when you think that I turned in my first draft to the to my reps in January and we were shooting in November. Um, that was miraculous. It doesn't work that way even now. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, John Wick and John Wick 2, especially with some of the hardest things I've ever done and gone through, um, but very proud of it, the people involved, and it gave me this career that I've worked so hard for, you know? And is Keanu a pretty good host when he invites you over to write? Oh, yeah. Oh, dude, that's the kind of, you know, instantly, he lives right above the... the that he lives in the hills there and so you know everything is some uh jewish deli which is just <laughs> glorious you know um he has this mini not mini it's this bar and it's the kind of stuff where a lot of the the bottles are are, are gifts because pri primarily what he drinks is just he's got a big handle of jack and some coke so he just Jack and Coke, you know, but then he has all these bottles. And if you look at these bottles, like I know alcohol, but like, I didn't know any of these. And it's like some 30 year crystal decanter, you know, and you're like, it's the best bourbon I've ever had, you know, but he's a, he's a joy of a host and he just gets into it. I mean, um, I loved working with him and we would spend an ungodly amount of time on every single page. Now, what I love about that is actually there's nothing negative about it. He would spend just as much time, if not more, on the characters that weren't him, that weren't his dialogue. And he's the only actor outside of Bob Odenkirk, which I did this nobody with, that understood how better it was for the movie and the character when you take dialogue away from him. I mean, there's this sequence between him and the priest uh, in the first John Wick where it was a soapbox moment that, you know, John's dialogue went from a page to, uh-huh. I mean, he, you know, and that was all guided by what Keanu uh, was doing, but here's a guy who's incredibly well-read who loves movies and uh, brought to it what he did and made it in his own. Well, speaking of getting to it, let's dig a little bit into this fascinating early draft that you sent over. So we fade in on a verdant landscape of rolling hills, lush countryside and ambient peace. The Wick household is introduced as a small, quaint two-bedroom farmhouse, and inside, the hour hand of an old electric clock shifts slightly, marking 6am. A soft alarm sounds, beneath the blankets a body shifts, a weathered hand reaching out to the silence to silence the antique. A beat, a sigh, a groan, and John Wick, early 60s, salt and pepper hair, three-day beard, former boxer, former military, tired, beaten down and at his wit's end sits up staring unblinkingly out at the day. So straight away, page one, we're encountering some pretty big changes to the finished film. You imagine John initially as a lot older. Keanu, I think, was late 40s when he shot the movie, but he's written in his early 60s in this draft. Can you tell me about what your early vision of who this character was? Because I think I once read that you wrote it for Paul Newman, despite, of course, Paul Newman sadly having died a few years prior. I, again, go back to what we had talked about before. Like I, I grew up with black and white movies. And so a lot of the times I write with 
old dead actors in mind because I grew up loving them, you know, and this was Paul Newman. And the idea of having a grizzled actor uh, having to come back out of retirement in such a way that he was the devil was key, you know. And so I love the idea that his, in that initial draft, that the wife had been dead for years, the dog was 15 or 16 years old, and it was the last gift she had given him. And so it was kind of in, you know, in that first draft, the thought was in John's head, when the dog dies, I die. You know, it's the last thing I have. But, the, and so it was thematically the same, but a shift, a pr perspective shift of like 20%. So when the dog was taken from him, um, you know, there are so many, you know, there have been so many drafts. And when you read that out loud, I'm, I'm kind of having PTSD in the best of ways. Um, <laughs> because I think in one of the drafts, no, I know in one of the first drafts, uh, in, when he does the sledgehammer and the pickaxe in the floor, there's a door and he opens the door and he walks down into this space and he flicks on a light and there are like 50 pieces of luggage and they're all tagged and he goes through and he checks the tags and he grabs this piece of luggage and you're like, what is going on? You know, now that is a very expensive shot for a production that had very little money that was kind <laughs> of, you know, pieced together internationally. So it becomes a suitcase in the floor. But I think a lot of the changes came from the fact that, we had been out to directors with a screenplay and there are a lot of directors who are like, love it, but he needs to have his whole family murdered. And we were all like, we've seen that before. Like, that's not the point. And that's not, you know, this is, it's not exactly a revenge movie. It's a awakening movie. And uh, so when uh, Keanu got hold of it, he, the first thing he said to me in person was I'm going to play him 35. And I was like, well, it changes everything, but cool. And so automatically you couldn't have an old dog. It was leaving him a puppy. You know, and the weirdest thing about this whole production now is leaping forward for the script you have is for the longest time, even in post, we were all wondering, is, uh, is it enough that it's the puppy that died? And is it because the puppy died or was John just, you know, using it as an excuse to be the devil again? And after that first screening, we were like, now nah, the puppy's enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but the puppy is such, it's such a genius device because it's kind of like that. Uh, it's like a twisted version of that, like principle of screenwriting, save the cat. So often films have characters being nice towards animals to, to signpost that these are kind people, you should root for them. And here, John fails to save the cat and it breaks him, and it sparks this insatiable quest for revenge. And the people who kill the cat, although it's a dog here, obviously, you want this revenge enacted upon them. And all of a sudden, the, as the plot then propels forward, this revenge mission, it becomes so gratifying to watch as these characters get what's coming to them. When did you land on that idea? You know, Point Break is one of my favorite movies, you know? Uh, no, point up, not point break, uh, point blank and with Lee Marvin. And there's this classic line where the whole thing is him trying to track down his money. And this guy offers to pay him and he goes, I don't want your money. I want my money. And you realize <laughs> find it insane. That's where, where I landed on it with the dog is going, John's kind of like, you know, and this is what Keanu plays so well. He's like, dude, I just, I'm going to kill that guy. Like I, Everything else doesn't matter. Just step aside. I want that guy. We're done, you know? And then what ends up happening is, you know, 
you peel back the layers of that onion, you awaken things. And so with the puppy, it wasn't a matter of going in with the cute and taking the cute from a guy, but it was a matter of going, look, you saw a guy losing his wife. You're alluding to the fact that this is a guy who's a loner and has nothing and is, you know, waiting for the inevitable, like not suicidal, but like, he's just going to live out life. So when the puppy shows up, it's, it's a reason to live. And when that's taken from him, it's an excuse and a driving force, you know. A much more straightforward but problematic approach to this story would have been to have seen John's wife killed by these gangsters and for that to be the thing that sparks revenge. But it, you, you obviously found it so much more interesting having him, like, starting the film with these sort of character study scenes that are so quiet and vulnerable and then having the death of this puppy be the thing that breaks him you know you think of i think a lot of that came from the fact of going back to old movies you know when you watch him as a kid you watch it in one way and you come to one conclusion and then you get older and you're like holy shit and uh for me it was always like uh a good example is die hard right you watch some movies an awesome action movie and then you're in your 20s and you're watching this and it and you realize that the best scenes in the movie uh, lean into the fact that John McClane still loves his ex-wife. You're like, it's a love story with a fuck ton of violence, right? <laughs> um, but it's also like Three Days of the Condor, which is a favorite of mine. When you're a little kid and you see that movie, you're like, he won. And then you see it when you're 22 and you're like, oh, he's fucked. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I think for John, it was, you want to have uh, what the best Westerns do. You know, when you're a little kid and you see Shane, and you're like, Shane rides off to the sunset. Great. And you're old and you're like, oh shit, Shane's dead. You know, uh, we wanted to have a lot of that unspoken narrative up front. We're like, you know, it's a weird one to bring up, but I love that scene in Schindler's List where Schindler talks to Ray Fiennes' character and he's like, you know, there's, there's such strength in forgiveness. And that one kid fucks up and he's in the mirror and he's like, I forgive you. And then of course he ends up shooting the kid. But there's this there's a lot of unspoken subtext there that we just want to put up front you know just you know the best is was it once upon a time in the west where they're all waiting for the train to come in and it's like seven minutes of silence yeah uh, it's we wanted that and so that to us was the character moment you read into it and you layer in what you think the character is and honestly the way those guys did it chad and dave you're all right you know as we mentioned, there is just so much slowness and softness in these opening moments for an action movie. I mean, within the first couple of pages, we see this action hero burst into floods of tears. The next pages of the screenplay after that opening scene are quite similar to how they are in the film. The real character piece moments that follow John and his morning routine, and it's morning in kind of both spellings of the word. In this version, the wife is not yet dead. She's in a coma, but John is there, broken, waiting for the inevitable. And you communicate through these scenes of John wandering around this dusty house in a dressing gown, that here is a guy living in a cloud of grief. It's just an unusual and like rebellious way to start an action film. Did you have any pushback on it with the executives you were working with kind of accommodating of wanting to do that? You know, I, I think at a certain point we were... Look, I love the Roger Moore Bond movies. They begin with the action scene of the third act of a movie that doesn't exist. Loved that. And for this, though, we thought it would be cool because we knew with the trailer that was going to be caught, it'd be like, ooh, action movie. But if you begin somber without being like overtly like, you know, he's he's drunk and, you know, he's abusive. And like we 
you just we wanted to show a guy mourning. And in fact, I don't know if it's in the draft you had, but like we, you know, Chad and Dave actually filmed a lot of uh, what John was doing to make a living, and he was repairing old books, you know, because we love the idea. And they filmed it, you know, and Keanu trained in how to, you know, repair antique books. Now, of course, you know, by the time you get to the movie and you're like, our first act is 35 minutes long, you have to cut that. <laughs> but thematically, it was just showing a guy that was taking old damaged things and repairing them and making them right again. And in our head and in, in, in the way we were all thinking was, this was a way of showing us and alluding to, we're going to make uh, John hold again, but through a great deal of, you know, labor. You move around the timelines a little bit um, in this draft. So we actually see John get a call. We don't hear the conversation, but his reaction tells us everything. And we cut to him going to the hospital where he bids a really emotional goodbye to his wife. She's comatose, her breathing synthetic, so many machines, so many wires, tubes and monitors. We never see her face, just her silhouette. He holds her hand for a long moment in heavy silence. And a doctor comes in and sort of, you know, gestures that it's time to turn the machine off and we have this really just like hard-hitting emotional moment where John's saying goodbye and he takes her hand and he leans down to kiss her on the forehead and says, be seeing you. But yeah, obviously, as we discussed, the timelines moved around. Was that partly because the character was now younger? You know, you always you always hear that, you know, a page of the screenplay is about a minute on screen. Mm. Uh, for scenes like that, it's much longer. You know, it's much longer. Those scenes were great but it becomes a very long movie. And uh, I think the way that they cut it and they did a genius way of going, you still feel the grief, but you don't have to go deep into the slog of it all, you know? Just because, look, if we had done that in the second movie and the first one was successful, you would forgive me for doing that because you know what the world is and you know where, where I'm heading. But for the first one, uh, you know, remember we went in, this is an original screenplay. It's not based on anything. You didn't know what you're getting into. You got to get to the meat of the matter. And even though we, we loved it all, I would argue that the, the best part of any director is knowing full well that there are scenes that you love, that you got to lose to get to the meat of the matter. And that's what they did. You take that out. But one thing you put in, in its place, are these scenes where John has old video footage of his wife and it's such an interesting device. Her dialogue in these home movies that he watches back over the course of the film. In the video, she's sort of saying like innocuous things, playful things like, what are you doing, John? As he returns to that footage over the course of the film, that phrase kind of twists in the context of what he's been doing. And that phrase almost sounds like a sort of voice from beyond the grave. What are you doing, John? It's like a really neat device. Um, when did that get introduced to the story? I have no idea, dude. <laughs> uh, all, all I know is the one thing that we've talked about was, you know how you read these books in, in high school or grade school and you're like, why the fuck am I reading this? Because you're too young. You're not really understanding anything. Yeah. I remember we read this play, Our Town, right? It's a weird, it's a weird play. It's the very end, the character you following the whole way, she's now dead and she's in heaven or the afterlife. And she's talking to someone, I think an angel and or God, I, I don't remember, but it was like, look, uh, you're going to, for eternity, you're going to relive one day. And they tell her like, dude, don't make it a special day because it'll become hell. Just make it a, an average day. And for the, so for the video, it was an average video. Like that's, that's where that kind of came about of like, 
of course, his favorite one would be the one that if she was alive, she looked back and says, of all the videos we had, why are you watching that one? <laughs> for some reason that that's why, you know, and the question we, I, I would argue we stumbled into accidentally of her really asking him what he was doing because, you know, <laughs> not, you know, I mean, it's just like, Hey man, I'll, I'll give credit where credit's due. If it's a different answer down the way from someone else. Great. But I think it was like, when she was like, what are you doing? We're like, yeah, what is he doing? Like, Ooh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Happy accident. That's cool. So the next couple of scenes um, are scenes that made it through to the finished film. So we have him uh, taking out his beloved car to the airfield where he drives around to kind of like let loose some of that grief and frustration at the world. He then drives to a gas station where he meets a character called Josef, mid-twenties, thin, oiled hair, sunglasses, hipster, douchebag. So Josef parks his car next to John's and as he gasses up, he asks, nice ride, how much? John tells him the car isn't for sale. Joseph smirks and mutters back in Russian, everything's got a fucking price. John, in Russian, says back, maybe so, but I don't. He returns home, cozies up with uh, a scotch on the sofa with Moose, which is the name of the dog, and falls asleep. So we, this is the this is our first introduction to the sort of villain of the film, or the initial villain of the film. I'm realizing when you read that to me, my neighbor at the time, they had a dog and it was a chihuahua. Sh- it was a it was a ch- uh, a chorgi chihuahua mix. <laughs> yeah. And when I was right when I was writing this, uh, we were dog sitting, and that dog's name was Moose. <laughs> uh, holy shit! And uh, I think Moose is still alive. And Moose, uh, I I was when I write, I have a pillow over my lap, so I put my my arms on it. Yeah. Moose was a puppy and was sleeping on the pillow while I wrote it. Um, holy shit, dude. I have, that's, that's awesome. Anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, my favorite part in any of these movies are going back again to, uh, De Niro's character in Ronin, where the things he says are very small, very minor, and they seem logical because they are, but then you watch it again and you're like, no, he's, he's a chess player. He's playing these massive games. And for John, it was okay. I uh, said, so guys, he's angry in this car and the car is a unicorn, right? It's a super rare, super souped up supercar, right? And then when he uh, just randomly talks Russian to this Russian kid, you're going, oh, holy crap. Yosef is the one who begins to peel back the onion. Um, that's where a lot of that came from. And how about the idea of Yosef being this kind of bratty, arrogant son, hedonistic son of a Russian crime lord? A lot of times in movies... It comes down to you have the old weathered gunslinger and the young guy come to town saying, I'm going to put you down. And the, re- the reality is what the gunslinger has is experience. And at a certain point, you might wonder if that gunslinger was that young guy who succeeded through attrition uh, to get to where he got. Um, because one of the things I love is there's no way uh, Yosef would know who he was uh, until his father did. And for us, I'm a huge horror fan. And that's the way a horror movie kind of begins. It's like, do you have any idea what door you opened? And I think a lot of it came from that, is my yeah, love of yeah. my genre, you know? Hey, everyone, this is Al. Just wanted to jump in with a quick shout out to our sponsors this week, Cave Day. Revising scripts requires supreme focus. The best writers know they need to harness everything they've got to overcome internal and external obstacles. Cave Day lead group focus sessions for a worldwide community every day on Zoom. Think of it like a group fitness class, but for your work. A trained guide leads check-ins, deep work sprints, and energizing breaks. Members report they get two to four times more done with Cave Day's science-backed method. 
Join the world's most focused community and work alongside Emmy winners and Oscar winners. Script Apart listeners can try a free three-hour cave with promo code SCRIPTAPART, that's all uppercase, at checkout. Head to caveday.org to try it out. That's caveday.org. Okay, back to the conversation. Joseph is, as you say, he's the only one who doesn't know who John is because John's obviously awoken in the night. Masked men are broken in to steal his car. Uh, they're the men from earlier. Joseph taunts John, having assaulted him, murdered his dog, and stolen his car. John then goes to, he gets the bus to Aurelio's, a car repair shop, evidently used by the criminal underworld. And this is where you start to begin to pepper in this sense that everyone knows John, or his reputation precedes him. The structure of it is so, so fascinating, the idea of like, the tables turn, almost, and everyone knows that it, it becomes like a hunt. Was there a moment where you broke the back of the story and realised that this is going to be this like cat and mouse chase? Sometimes I'll do treatments and stuff, but this one was just going, you know? And there is a favorite scene. I think it's in that script you have. And we we wanted to do it, but we didn't have the time. And we wanted to do a second one and the third one, but it just never fit, is when uh, John's car rolls up to Aurelio's, there's these two old guys outside the garage sitting there. And they look at the car, they look at each other, they stand up and they leave. And to us, that that's the best of like, it's like, you know, the old Western where a new guy walks in the bar, everyone gives him the stink guy, except for the old miner who's like, oh, I recognize this and off he go, you know? <laughs> uh, I think for me, it was like, you begin to seed, uh, you know, here comes the whole like, you know, we're getting closer, here it comes. And the idea that uh, the, you know, Eos's father is pissed and Aurelio's like, yeah, um, you took John Wick's car and suddenly there's, there's a tonal shift in the screenplay mm. and there's a tonal shift in the movie. And suddenly that was when we watched the audience, when he goes, Oh, everyone kind of like went forward in their seats a little bit. Um, so a lot of it is a little, it's a little bit, uh, you know, happy accident and emulating the shit I loved growing up. <laughs> you do kind of get a moment like the one you described though, where uh, John pulls up behind a bouncer at the club and you prepare to watch John take this guy out, but instead they know each other and John's like, why don't you take the night off, man? And the guy, the guy just gets the hell out of that. It's funny because that's the one that that, uh, that never changed. You know, we, we I just always love the idea that John has a sense of humanity as well, where he's like, you know, I could kill this guy, but why? If this guy who's 300 pounds can just walk away of his own volition and not come back, that's easier for me. But also just kind of shows a little bit of this, there's a, a silver line to his own bleak soul, you know? And to me, you're, you're the best action movies, the best of any movies, they don't have to be spot on funny, but they have humor. And that's the kind of stuff we really wanted to do. For instance, there is a scene in the second one where uh, the, the contract goes out on John to everybody. And we really wanted that same guy from the first one to get the, get the cell phone and be like, Nope, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that kind of thing. But those are the scenes, by the way, that are easy to shoot and become fan favorites. And during it, you're like, you're almost treating it like pickups. And then you realize, Oh man, it's Indiana Jones when he shoots the swordsman. Granted he had din- dysentery, but like, they didn't think that one would fly and it's everyone's favorite scene, you know? They narratively don't push things forward, but as you say, they, they're the scenes that fans really take to. Yeah. But again, like when I was a little kid, you know, and we played Star Wars, very rarely were you Luke Skywalker, Han Solo. You want to be Boba Fett. 
you wanted to be Bosk. You want to be that character who's on screen for arguably 40 seconds if that. <laughs> uh, and we wanted to just layer that in. You know, Miss Perkins is awesome. You know, any of these other characters like Winston and Sharon. And, you know, I just want to make sure that, you know, again, Three Days of the Condor, Max von Sydow shows up on, as Jobert and he's this badass assassin, but he's kind and he's gentle and he's grandfatherly, which makes him horrifying. That was a lot of that taking place. And luckily, all of the actors involved in that first one, when, you know, I really do believe that, you know, a screenplay isn't a Bible, um, you know, for all of the actors, we sat down and we let them do your, how do you want to say it? Like, you know, what are you comfortable with? You know, and some of them, you know, Russian wasn't their first language. So we'd, we'd shift it around in such a way that they would have an easier time saying their lines, remembering their lines. But come the end of it, they made the characters their own and come and uh, it was a sandbox we all got to play in, you know. Aurelio gives John a lead to follow. And there's a scene that I think was cut out of the finished film. Uh, John goes to this Japanese auto repair shop and not much happens in the sequence that isn't repurposed later into the final film. But I just wanted to kind of focus in on it because it's it's the first time we see action in this script. And I'm so fascinated by the way you write action. The description's just hard-hitting, really impactful. His gait is steady, his shoulders relaxed, hands limp at his sides, breath steady. The two guards at the door glance up as he approaches, standing as they shift into character. Guard one says, what are you? Without slowing, John reaches into the man's jacket, slips free the pistol from the shoulder holster therein, and thump thump, fires twice into the man's heart before turning, thump, to fire once into the other guard's face, never slowing. He is the angel of death. Each target receives two well-placed bullets to ensure incapacitation. He never slows, never misses, and will not stop. That is so gripping on the page. Um, The action beats in the John Wick screenplay, even in this early draft, none of it's like a placeholder saying, and then they fight. It's descriptive. It hits hard. And it's also rooted in character. So John is so economical in his kills in a way that kind of informs you about his history and the life that he's tried to run from. Is there an action writing philosophy that like has guided you over the years and sort of influenced your work in John Wick? How do you how do you define great action? I grew up loving movies and I read a shit ton. And a lot of what I read was uh, Alistair MacLean and a lot of those action uh, thriller detective hardboiled novels of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and on. And then Tom Clancy, of course, and all those guys, Clive Cussler. And, you know, the best writers really get into it. You know, like uh, Tom Clancy, like you might go for dozens of pages about a fight scene because he's going through 15 characters and you're like just if you eat popcorn read a book you're like ah I, mean, I want more of this you know? <laughs> and i think for me too is i my teacher in writing was film and from the books i read i read very few screenplays and it was like you find your own voice and what i loved was i want to feel that i'm there and i'm seeing something a little bit different a little bit unique but familiar and as a guy who grew up with Kung Fu and, you know, the Jet, jet, the jet Lees of the world and the Jackie Chans and the Samuel Hungs and the Street Fighter and all that kind of stuff, like, you want to show that guy who comes in and he doesn't want to be there. He's going to go through point. He's, he's going to go from point A to point B to point C. Nothing's going to stop him. But there's kind of like this, you want to feel how he does it. And you want it to be gra- you know, grounded plus 15%. So a lot of that's where it comes from, you know. Uh, you'll you'll see in my screenplays like uh, you know Sonia will 
point this out way too many times. Like you got to stop kicking a guy's knee in for the leg to fold in a natural angle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, you know, you know, there's, or, or snap snapping bones here and there. But like we, if you read some of those screenplays and it says they fight, it derails you. And for what I do, these execs, these directors, these actors, they're going through multiple screenplays a day and I can't afford to be derailed. I got to be entertained. You know, um, that's where a lot of it came from. And to be honest, it's you spend a lot of time on that because it becomes a ballet. It becomes a choreography. Some of the stuff makes it to screen and you feel blessed for it. Other times when John goes to the red circle and jams that guy's face down on the table and shoots him multiple times in the head, that's not in the screenplay, but that was fucking cool, you know? <laughs> and so those guys, you know, Chad and Dave, they, they, they have like the invisible little black book of all the things they've wanted to do on the screen. And they brought a lot of it to that first one. And I felt blessed to, you know, actually have a couple of core scenes that were mine, but action's cool and it's fun, but it's gotta be intimate and it's gotta be concise. You know, uh, after 45 seconds, even as a lover of the genre, you're going to begin to glaze over. It's gotta be satisfying to a degree. And I suppose the hard thing to balance as well is John's not a superhero. How do you kind of like keep track of like what's uh, realistic and within the bounds of possibility, but also hints at this kind of like elite training and this backstory that we haven't yet been privy to? You know, a lot of it is when you look at those movies, like First uh, First Blood's a great example, is it isn't until you see what Rambo is doing uh, that you have that one character come in and give him the soapbox moment. Like, do you know who this is? You know, but we saw him doing things. We're like, dude, he's thinking a different way. He's reacting a different way. And in fact, he's not reacting. He's pro he's proactive throughout. Um, I love the idea too, that this is something we discuss when he fights the main bad guy at the end of John wick, he sacrifices a knife to his side so that he can snap the guy's arm and do the killing blow. Um, that's the kind of character he is. And I think a lot of it has to do going back to, and I've said this before, but like Rambo's not the best soldier. Rocky's not the best fighter. McLean's not the best cop. They have will. And no matter how much training you have, what made John the Baba Yaga of old is will. Uh, and I think that coupled with those moments of, you, he knows what he's doing, you know, like even on that house um, invasion, that first action sequence in the script, one of the things they talked about doing and we kind of did and we did elsewhere is John doesn't kill a lot of those guys right away. He makes them scream because the idea is that the other people are unnerved as what the fuck's going on, you know, and that's what a pro would do. It's kind of going back to uh, Sergeant York, you know, the, the true story of the Germans in World War One heading towards the trenches and he's shooting at them and his, uh, his commanding officer thinks he's missing, but what he's doing is he's shooting the Germans in the back first. So the yeah. ones that lead will keep running. And if you just saw that on screen, you'd be like, Oh shit, this guy's badass." And that's where a lot of it comes from with John wick, you know? I'm so glad that you brought up Rambo because, well, let's talk about the next scene. We meet Vigo sixties face scarred by a hard life. One eye dead, expensive suit, a slight limp relying on a cane. There's a version of this scene in the final film it's the moment where Vigo tells Joseph, it wasn't what you did which draws my ire, but who you did it to. Joseph replies, what, the old man? Vigo smirks, his name is John Wick. And when he was 15, he lied his way into the Marines and headed off to Vietnam. 
he specialised in force-orientated reconnaissance, meaning he often crossed over into enemy territory to both collect information and, should the opportunity present itself, fuck with the enemy in whatever way that he saw fit. John earned 417 confirmed kills over the course of his five tours. The majority of those were done by hand, by blade, and by small calibre, which is unheard of. So, the original version of the character, your original vision for John Wick, it was kind of Rambo-esque. Yeah, it was, and honestly, it was very John Clark from yeah. Tom Clancy. Uh, these are the characters I really love. Like, by the way, having 417 confirmed kills would make you the devil, you know? <laughs> um, but I also loved, like, the the tunnel rat of it all. The, um, you know, I love, you know, everyone has those stories of, of someone who lied about their age to get in the military. And in that original script, like, I love the idea that we don't know what he came from. It just, he begins with, he was 15 and lied his way in the military. And off he goes, you know? Um but, you know, to me as a little kid, uh, First Blood had a massive effect because it's posited as an action movie, and it is, but you watch that movie and it's disturbing, you know, yeah. like when, you, when, he, when he has that breakdown at the end and you, for the first time, probably that nine-year-old kid who saw it on HBO late at night, um, it hit you like, oh, this is, this is uh, you know, ruined goods, so... Uh, I, I think a lot of it goes back to like Firefox is another example, like that yeah. first shot of Clint Eastwood jogging home and the helicopters landing and he, he flashes back to Vietnam. There are a lot of movies I grew up with where, you know, missing in action, all of those went there. And so it was my love of those movies, my love of genre and, and you know, John Clark and that whole stuff that that's where that came from. And how did it begin to evolve? Because it, it's quite a big change. Yeah. Well, honestly, it was going back to what we had talked about where less is more, you know? And I think um, the one, I don't know if it's in the screenplay or not. It was a throwaway line I had in the screenplay that became a little bit of legend with the pencil, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know? And I was like, oh, that's cool. And kill the guy with the pencil, right? Cut, you know? Um, and it wasn't in, in, in Chad, even on production of the first movie, he's like, if, if we get to do a second one, I'm, I'm doing that. <laughs> you know um but i think a lot of the reasons that the changes were if you if you hear a guy say i'm a badass you're like okay if you hear a guy say that guy's a badass it's a little bit more but then if you just see a guy's reaction like uh there have been movies where it's this unspoken where like i'm looking at you you're looking at me and you glance down and you notice a tattoo on my arm and automatically you're like you, i you know the audience's reaction volumes of the information was just you know exchanged between these two characters and you caught the the subtext of it that's what we wanted to do more and so a lot of those things uh you know kind of went with kind of went the way of the dodo <laughs> yeah that makes sense and that scene is intercut with these shots of John smashing up concrete in his basement with a sledgehammer, uncovering a buried arsenal of weapons, which is such a cool uh, visual metaphor because it's conveying that he's tried to build this domestic life on top of his old existence, but it's still there, still lurking beneath the surface, and now it's unleashed. Well, I mean, it's like any movie, like, you know, if he was out of it, why did he keep it? You know, even when they, the idea of like you bury something to say goodbye, but you keep it nearby. You know, I, I, I always loved that about the old gunslingers where like they, they still kept their guns, you know? Um, so that's where a lot of that came from. 
you know, one of the things that we wanted to show too is alluding to the larger world when you see the gold coins. Yeah. You know, when you see, in essence, the you know currency of the underworld. And talk to me about Marcus because he's uh, he's a really interesting character who you use quite sparsely. He, he plays like an interesting role in this kind of game of chess that sort of unfolds. He's he's part guardian angel saving John from afar as assassins descend on him. But, you know, you also partly wonder whether he's helping John because he wants that bounty himself. Can you tell me about Marcus? What I always loved about Marcus is the idea that neither of them had much family in life and there was nothing about the other that they had outside of professional become the end of it. It's like, you know, it's that cl- it's that classic line from uh, Kill Bill uh, Part 2 where you know, she's just delivered the blow to Bill and he goes, he taught it to you, didn't he? And she's like, of course. You know, that's kind of, to me, the the notion of, you know, Marcus looked upon John as a son. Uh, would he die for him at the end? Yeah, of course. Like, what else does he have? You know, uh, you could also argue that John was Marcus's puppy in the most weirdest of ways. You know, <laughs> um, But to me, too, um, I've written a number of things where you have a female protagonist and I get tired of the princess stuck in the ivory castle. Um, and you realize that no, she's there because she wanted to be there and fought her way out. That scene with Marcus, where he goes out by his own hand in such a way, was also like giving an antihero a hero's death, you know? And it allowed, allowed us to show characters in a postmodern setting that harken back to the very classic uh, characters that we grew up loving, you know? And much like Winston, Marcus was a smaller character that became bigger, you know, and it became bigger because um, we all grew to love what it brought out in John and what it hinted at to the world and who in and of himself was as a character. And Willem, dude, that guy was a saint, you know, he didn't have to do this. And uh, he gave his time and his effort. And uh, it was it's just awesome. There's a really interesting um, interaction that Marcus gets to have with John in this draft. John asks Marcus, what am I doing? I mean, it was just a dog. Marcus replies, it's always just something, John. Just a wife, just a son, just a friend, just a house, just a car, just a dog, or just a cat. Each of those I've lost in no particular order, and each time the pain I felt was quite real. It's, uh, yeah, that's like an interesting sort of um, articulation of some of the themes of the of the film. But you, I think you, you decided to strip that out, right? Yeah, and it's we we were torn on that because one of the things that I loved about that scene was more often than not in those movies, you have a character like Marcus and he'll tell a character like John, uh, man the fuck up, what are you doing? You know, you're, you don't feel anything. And in that in in Marcus, what he did in through the the unspoken narrative of the movie was he conveyed no. He 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 actually tells John, lean into feeling something, which you you expect a character like him to do otherwise. And, uh, you know, we had to strip some of that out just because, you know, time is the devil on any production. It's not money, it's time. And so um, we did what we could and we're, you know, we got what was said there without it being said. And throughout all this, John is on his The Raid-esque mission. He's rampaging through discos, through bathrooms, through bank vaults. We get to an interesting change on page 85. So John has torched Vigo's bank vault with all his money and crucially all his leverage on the city for kind of blackmailing elected officials and all that. 
And um, he, he uses it as bait. Vigo and his crew turn up and John, waiting patiently from a cafe across the street, ambushes them. Now here, you kill Vigo. And uh, yeah, the draft then ends in a big fight out with Josef and his crew. But of course, in the finished film, it's the other way around. And it's Josef that's dispensed slightly early in the film. And Vigo becomes the, the sort of final villain. Can you tell me about that change? I think part of what happened in the development there at the end was realizing that once Vigo did what he did, he became the villain. Like he became the yin, the yang, the other side of the coin. Where I still, you know, a lot of people had problems with it. And usually I do in tune movies, but I love that John just randomly shoots Yosef when he's dying on the floor. Where he's just like, <laughs> boom, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, he's there was no long like interchange of like, you fuck. It was just like, boom, you know. Um, but there were so, also so many things where we talked about in the movie and the script and they, they shot it and cut it where it's like, love the idea that he gave up his son and John literally is just going to walk away. Vigo's going to be fine. But then the, the, the devil comes out of Vigo saying, well, now I have to avenge my son. Like I have to, like, I have to kill him, you know? And I think for us, it was, uh, alluding to what was to come in the franchise of there are rules, but are there rules? Like they, it's like faith. It's like the economy. It's like politics. They exist because you believe they exist. You know, once you begin to lose your faith in anything, you're like, like, is there really no business done on continental grounds? That kind of thing. And that was the beginning of that. And uh, that's where the fun was to be had. John kills Yosef in this brutal battle, but ends up pretty beat up himself from the fight. He uh, finds a vet, a veterinarian's office where he can patch himself up. And here he meets a new furry friend, Miko. And the film essentially ends with them riding off into the sunset together. Why did you want to have kind of John reset at the end of the movie, adopting a new four-legged friend as like an emotional payoff? Because I think a lot of times these characters, you know, they don't get a happy ending, you know? And usually the happy ending they do get feels so synthetic, you know? For a character like John who's bleeding out, of course, what he would look for is, is medical. And one of the you know easiest in his mind would be a veterinarian's office. And if you look closely at the movie, and this is all, I think it was Dave, Chad, no, we'll say Chad and Dave, but the dog, the dog that he takes, if you look closely at the tag on on the uh, cage, is going to be put down the next day. And so oh, no. he actually rescues a dog that was about to be killed. That was actually much more important to all of us. And so not only was he given a second chance, he's giving a second chance to this animal, because. In that moment, he saw a reflection of himself, you know, and one of the things I love, you know, at the time, Sonia was working with dog daycare and dog adoption and rescues. And you see some of these animals come in that it makes you kind of lose all faith in the entity because they're so abused and they're frightened and they're back to feral. And then you show them love and you're like, Oh, this is a gorgeous creature, you know? <laughs> and, uh, that's kind of what we wanted to do with John is, and what ended up happening is, uh, to me, the rules of noir have always applied even before the, the first John Wick. It's that, you know, a guy could walk in the room and he is horrifying and everyone avoids him except animals, children, and the elderly, because all they see is the core. They see the soul. And that's what we want to do with John. And so as things progress, of course, animals, uh, you know, we, we, you know, just they're drawn to him because they know full well that he's one of them. And I love that. How much of the John Wick mythology did you have mapped out at this point, Derek? Because you've been peppering into this film 
all these references and glimpses at a bigger world, did you know where they were leading? Or were you just dropping them in with like the philosophy of like, well, if we get sequels, we can explore these things in greater detail then? Yeah, no, honestly, it was it was that. It was, you know, especially working with Chad on, on the second and third one and beyond, um, he loves to paint himself into a corner and find find the way out. Uh, it's it's horrifying when you're the rider with him, but when you find <laughs> your way out, you're like, there we go. And you've earned it by that. Then you've earned it. You know, like there were sequences where in John Wick two, it was going to begin with what am I looking at? And what you realize you're at the foundry and you're seeing the coins made, you know, um, and you, you're introduced to the marker being made. Um, all of those little, uh, asides, you know, you know, there are still some that remain in John Wick one, two, and three that we'd like to, to, um, to answer down the way, but like things like the high table, that was Chad. He's like, let's just do it. Let's, you know, let's like the umpire, Derek, like let's call it something cool. And I think he came up with the term, the high table It's just like, at a certain point, you don't want to answer everything. You want to answer just enough because it keeps you, you know, still kind of wondering. And if you're an 11 year old who saw this movie much too young, you're outside playing the game and you're like, I'm that guy that was referenced and mentioned and I get to build it out however I want. Yeah. You pepper in your own bosks into the world. Exactly. (laughs) By the way, he was my favorite and I don't know why he's on screen for like three seconds, probably because he was one of my favorite, like first, like Star Wars character. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the other thing too, is like, when you look at a lot of the characters around John, you could argue that Mrs. Miss Perkins, she's more badass than John. You mm-hmm. know, when you look at, uh, you know, Aries, she's more badass than John, but it's will that gets John through. And all of these things come to that where it's like, dude, you, un- you, un- you know, you, you took the genie out of the bottle and he won't go back. Well, you've got an in now at Disney plus to make that star Wars Bosque spinoff. <laughs> yes <laughs> and, you know honestly like, and I, I remember talking to Fetty Alvarez at a barbecue about this but uh, I'm not you know uh, but you know talking about Batman right mm. if I could do a Batman it'd be a 35 million dollar hard R rated movie where it goes up against like the calendar man and we do it by way of seven right and if, we were, if, it was a, if I was to do a, a Star Wars movie there'd be no Jedi you know I want to focus on like you know kind of what they did with the Mandalorian but darker um just because that's what we played with as kids. That's where we want to go. It's why you play side missions in any video game. You're like, that's where the meat of the soul is, you know? <laughs> so I, I know every uh, every writer is just glad to see their film up on the screen and you're, you're glad to get it made. You're not thinking ahead to sort of sequels. But at what point did you realize during the writing of John Wick that this has the potential to be expanded on and it could be this big franchise that has not only sequels, but spinoffs incoming? Uh, you know, honestly, through the first one, because I remember talking with Keanu, who um, it was right before we were going to shoot, and he and he just asked me, he's like, how many of these do you have in your head? And I was like, well, right now, nine. And he laughed and he said, really? And I started talking about where I would go. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just focus on the first one, right? <laughs> of course, the second and third one became completely different stories than what we were talking about. But um, I think it was just kind of like, Again, back to the action itself being intimate. It's a character moment. You look at the MCU, um, the best action scene is still Winter Soldier when uh, you know uh, Captain America takes on the guys in the elevator. And then uh, to me too, is when you look at uh, 
the second J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. Here you've got a scene where a, uh, uh, a spaceship is crashing into a city again. But what matters is Spock is beating the fuck out of Khan. All <laughs> of that kind of stuff layered in. Yeah, yeah. You see in two and three, that's what makes you love that shit, you know? So in terms of continuing to expand this universe, there is a spin-off movie coming called Ballerina that's in development. There is also a TV prequel series called The Continental in the works. Can you tell me about those projects? Are you involved or are you sort of, yeah, adjacent to them? Dude, I'm, I'm involved in a tertiary capacity. I mean, Lionsgate has reminded me time and time again that this thing has graduated uh, and has gone off to college. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, all of it has my blessing because why wouldn't it? Like, I, mm. I feel honored and blessed to be a part of this. It, I, I, I worked so hard and so long to get to a place where I can do this for a living. But, you know, between all those things, John Wick, you just you want it to do what it does. Uh, I was involved in three of these movies. And for writers to be involved in three movies back to back is fucking rare. And I, I'm blessed for it. And I wish them all well. And at the same point, uh, I'm still close with Chad. I'm still close with Dave. Uh, they asked my opinions. And we talk and we work together. And it's kind of like, what are, you, what are we going to do now? It's like, let's fucking play. So let's, you know, and between the video games and all the other things, you know, this is my first thing out the gate. And, uh, you know, I'm a 20 year overnight success. <laughs> it's depressing. <laughs> so are you involved in four or five um, or have you passed the torch on now? No, I'm, I'm not really involved in it. Um, uh, I actually don't know where, where they are right now. Um, you know, and a lot of it has to do with timing when you think of, uh, not only COVID, but Matrix 4. And, you know, Chad was uh, Keanu's stunt double on that one. And they're involved with uh, Wachowski's up on there. Um, but no, not yet. But who knows, you know? Um, yeah, it's weird. It's it's always a weird industry where it's like if, if Tom Clancy did a Jack Ryan series and then uh, Derek Colstead showed up to write one, and you're like, where'd Tom go? But that's, that's also Hollywood. It's just the way it works. And you just kind of, you could be cynical and bleak about like, where am I? Or you can go like, yeah, go do have fun. You know, <laughs> and I, and I have to lean towards the latter, man, because I fucking love movies and to the people involved who gave me my start blessings, man. You know, how do you think it will feel when you watch for the first time, a John Wick movie that you haven't made where you're just an audience member? Yeah, I have no idea. You know, I, I think there will be a sadness. Uh, I think there will be an excitement and it'll, there'll be a detachment, you know, which is neither negative or positive. Um, because, you know, when I, when I jokingly said to you before, but it was true what I said to Keanu of having nine in my head, this guy has off and gallivanted in a number of, you know, adventures in my head that won't, won't see the screen. So at a certain point I will, uh, you know, repackage them and find something new and continue to do what I love to do. And that's emulate the movies I love, you know? I suppose the cool thing is you are now free to explore passages new. And Derek, I would get about 80,000 angry emails from fans of yours if I didn't ask about some of that upcoming work. The Falcon and Winter Soldier TV show. How is that coming along? I can tell you very little. <laughs> I thought as much. But I'll, I'll say this. Uh, that was, you know, Malcolm Spellman and Kara Scoglin and Dalen Musson and crew. Um, it was the first time I worked a room in television. And it's different in Marvel, just like everything is. But it's been working for them. Uh, and an absolute joy. Um, that was fun. It was hard. 
but it was fun. Um, now they got hit by the COVID and they're finishing up finally, but uh, that's going to be fucking cool. And I, I can't wait and, and, and very proud and honored for what that, that, that came to be, you know? Is there anything you can let on about the sort of tone and feel of the show and where it takes those two beloved characters that Marvel haven't been able to take them in the MCU? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Here, you know, here's what I'll say. Is, you know, growing up, uh, everyone would give someone like Robin shit, but Robin's pretty badass, you know, and he became pretty badass in the comics. You're taking secondary characters and putting them in the primary roles and they're cooler. They're more interesting. There is more humanity. There's more uh, longing, more suffering, more coming to grips with who and what they are. That's cool. Now, what I will say is there are characters from the earliest of the Marvel movies that are coming back and they're, they're layering them in and uh, reinventing them in such a way uh, that it's going to kind of uh, shift the storytelling structure, which is fucking awesome. That was a non-answer answer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, that is certainly something to look forward to. Derek, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Script Apart. In the immortal words of a certain dog-loving assassin, I'll be seeing you. Thank you too, man. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamel Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.